The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my God and my Redeemer. Amen. Our gospel text this evening comes at a bit of a climax in this extended discussion that Jesus has been having with his disciples, but within earshot of the Pharisees. The Pharisees the religious leadership of Israel had been complaining about Jesus' choice of friends. If you were with us a few weeks ago, you might remember. He eats with tax collectors, loose women, and sinners. They sneered. And in res response to their sneering and their grumbling and their complaining, Jesus tells three stories about lostness. And with each story about lostness, he shows them that the repentance of one of these nasty little sinners that they can't stand brings about an explosion of joy in God's presence that is unlike anything they could imagine. And then he follows these stories with another story about a cheating steward who acts shrewdly to avoid the judgment signaled in the arrival of his Lord. And he ends that parable rather pointedly by saying, you cannot serve both God and money. And we're told in the very next verse, now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard these things and ridiculed him. In response to their ridicule, Jesus spits back that they have sought to justify themselves before men, but that God knows their hearts. And then he proceeds to tell the story of Lazarus and the rich man. This story is one of contrasts and really one of extremes. The rich man 
is described not simply as well-off, but as like opulently wealthy, gaudy, ostentatious. It's way over the top. Only the richest of the rich would dress in fine linen, and only people richer than that would dress in purple. And to have both of them on at the same time, I mean, this is like when Kanye replaced his teeth with golden diamonds. You guys remember that? It's just a, it's a little too much. It's coming on a little strong. We're told that the rich man feasted sumptuously every day. I mean, we're talking here about what, what the richest of the rich might do a couple times a year. He was doing every single day, having these massive feasts. At this point, we're in Marie Antoinette territory. Do you remember her? The Queen of France who was beheaded in the French Revolution? As her people were living in poverty and squalor, she reportedly had a playhouse built in her garden so that she could play peasant. When she was told that the people were starving to death because they had no food, she replied, let them eat cake if there's no bread. Contrast with Lazarus. He was most likely severely handicapped or told that he was laying at the gate. Someone put him there. This is the place where people that had no means would come and beg alms. We're told he was covered not in fine linen and purple cloth like the rich man, but in sores. To him, a sumptuous feast would have been just the food that was brushed off into the crumb tray of this man's feasts. He was kept outside the rich man's gated community, kept at a distance so as not to ruin the daily party atmosphere. And we're told it was only the dogs, those filthy, outcast street, street creatures who probably had a better meal than he did, who actually took notice of Lazarus and came and licked his sores. And the story continues in extreme contrast, but now with a dramatic reversal. Both men die. Don't skip past that part. Death is no respecter of persons. Both men die. Lazarus probably lay unburied. Maybe he was thrown into an unmarked grave so as not to be a nuisance to passers-by. The rich man is buried, probably embalmed with the most expensive spices and ointments. He likely has the largest tomb with the most ostentatious marking to let the world know. Here lies a great man. But on the other side, we're told Lazarus is carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man finds himself in Hades in torment. The word that describes his agony and suffering is, is a constant restlessness. He just cannot be satisfied. The lack of satisfaction that he exhibited in his earthly life is now tormenting him in the afterlife. And now, notice, it is the rich man who is kept at a distance. The very gate that he had put up to keep the riffraff out now barred him from getting anywhere near Lazarus and Abraham. But notice what hasn't changed. The rich man is still the same proud mess of a man. Send Lazarus to fetch me some water, he says. As if Lazarus is still the one to do his bidding. Abraham, of course, gently tries to help the man understand his new circumstances, but he cannot hear it. This is a man who has probably read The Art of the Deal. He's learned how to negotiate. He doesn't take no for an answer. 
So he says, well, then send him to my father's house then, this little errand boy, so that my brothers can be warned. We're going to come back to that little line in just a moment. My brothers. He doesn't care about anybody except himself and his own family. Now, before we get to the pivot, to sort of get at the underlying meaning of what Jesus is saying here, I want us to just take a minute and consider what is happening on the surface here. Notice, first of all, that Lazarus has a name, but the rich man does not. This is intentional on the part of Jesus. The rich man would have been known far and wide throughout the land, who he was, what his parties were like, how he dressed. He was at the front cover of all of the tabloids. And Lazarus would have been the guy that nobody really knew his name. And yet in God's economy, in Jesus' telling of the story, Lazarus has a name and the rich man doesn't. Jesus is showing us that in God's kingdom, being rich and fancy and famous is absolutely meaningless. It doesn't warrant even having your name recorded or remembered. To give Lazarus a name, and it's not just any name, by the way. It's a name that means literally one whom God has helped. It's to remind us that all people are created in God's image, and to have God as your helper is better than any amount of money and wealth you could possibly ask for. But we also must understand the rich man was not condemned for being rich. How do we know? Well, look where Lazarus was sent. He was sent to Abraham's side. Abraham was an incredibly wealthy man. It's not like Lazarus has this chip on his shoulder and is just hanging about with a bunch of people who were poor but are now in power and rich, and so they're going to stick it to all those other people. No, no, no. That's not what this is. The rich man is being condemned for his insistence that Lazarus didn't actually exist. He failed to recognize him at all. I think a lot of us struggle, rightfully so, with how to interact with people who have been laid at the gate in the city of Portland, don't we? I mean, we live in a place where homelessness seems to be continuing to get worse, where addiction is ravaging communities of people that are already on the margins. And I think we could hear this story of Jesus and just sort of run out in a frenzy trying to do good and maybe make things worse if we don't really think about it for a second. And I think the, the main thing is that loving people, really loving people and seeing them is really, really hard. Ignoring them is easy. Giving them money is second easy. Loving them is difficult. I think for many of us, though, we, we f have these feelings of either indifference or superiority or guilt or probably a mixture of all three. And so when we see the panhandler, we just pretend that they're not there, don't we? I know, I know the walk. We all do the walk. You just, you sort of, you're, all of a sudden you're, you have a phone call and you're, you're just busy, right? And what I think we need to realize is that if you have been baptized into Christ... That means you have been incorporated into the one who was marred beyond recognition, who was led like a silent, nameless sheep to the slaughter outside of the camp, 
as an outcast. He was led outside the city so that empire and commerce and wealth could continue to happen uninterrupted. We don't don't really want to see that. But you, if you have placed your faith in Christ, have been united with one who was strung up between two homeless thieves, and there was a big sign tacked above his head that said, Loser! King of the Jews! It was a sneer. It was a joke. He was a punchline. And at the very least, what you've got to understand is you have to stop trusting in your winning personality, in your great smile, in your ability to make the sale or talk to people or your skills or your money or your zip code or your clothing because none of that stuff is going to do you any good if you don't come and die with Christ. That's what it is to be baptized. It's to come and die. But so often we use our wealth as a means not just to buffer ourselves from the poor and needy, but to anesthetize ourselves. Is that the right word? (laughs) This is such a great point, wasn't it? Maybe. We use it to deaden our senses to our own deadness. We use wealth to prop ourselves up and make us think that we're alive in our own abilities. And and we're we're blind to our deadness, to our lostness. C.S. Lewis said this, Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you'll find him, and everything else will be thrown in. Jesus' words about wealth and the way that it controls us, we tend to just sort of let slip past us a lot. I mean, even last week, That end to that parable, you cannot serve both God and money. I mean, that is completely counter to how we think about money. We think that money serves us. And he's trying to tell us it's the other way around. But what Jesus is getting at here in this story of Lazarus and the rich man, I think is actually much more profound than just the contrast between greed and need. Indeed, it's more harrowing than the stunning reversal of going from physical riches to a tormented restlessness. Jesus is telling this story to the Pharisees. He's saying it to his disciples, but the Pharisees are listening. And he's telling them something that they should have already known, that they, as representative of the Jewish religious insiders, had been given opulent wealth. They had received the scripture, the law, the prophets, the writings, it was theirs. They had received the covenant because of anything they had done? No. Because of Father Abraham's faith in God's promises. And now these people, these sinful, awful people that they can't stand, they're being brought into the covenant with with a, a relationship with the creator God of the universe because of Jesus. And the Pharisees don't like it because they don't understand why they had been given these great riches. The unimaginable wealth 
of God's kingdom was theirs, and they didn't know why. If they'd really understood Moses, they'd know. They had been given the wealth of God's covenant to be priests in the world. Moses told them that when they went to enter the land, to stand as a mirror between God and his creation, to reflect God out into the world and the nations, and to reflect the nations and the world back up to God. They had heard time and time again that passage in the early books of Scripture when the promise that was made to Abraham was that God would come and bless him and make him into a great nation. Why? To be a blessing, not just to their brothers, right? It's not just send Lazarus to my brothers. It's a blessing to all nations. These men should have been steeped in Old Testament prophecy. And in Isaiah, I mean, I found this in like five minutes Isaiah has so many things to say about what it meant to be the people of God. And he says this, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be exalted as the highest mountain, and all nations will stream to it. The root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. In that day, you will say, Give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done. Listen to me, my people, says the Lord. My justice will become a light for the nations. Foreigners will bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The wealth that the people of God had been given was to be shared with the world, with the nations, with the Gentiles with those pagan outsider sinners. But instead, they put up a gate and built a high wall around themselves to keep the sinners out. And what Christ is trying to tell them is that his arrival signifies the tearing down of that wall. It's been destroyed. Paul tells the Ephesian church this, Therefore, remember that formerly you, who are Gentiles by birth, at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you, who once were far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create a new humanity, one out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Jesus is trying to warn the religious insiders what is about to happen in his death. Paul goes on, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become 
a holy temple of the Lord above all the mountains, right? And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Friends, if you have been brought into Christ, you have been been given an inheritance of riches that boggles the mind. But it's not ours to just grasp onto and hoard and hide away. We are to be a city lifted up on a hill, a light on a stand, the salt of the earth, the manure around the crops of God's garden. That's what we're called to be. Here's how Paul continues in his letter to the Ephesians. And I encourage you tonight, take, take like eight minutes, okay? Put Instagram away, turn off the TV, eight minutes, and read Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. This is what it means that you have been brought in as Gentiles, right? I mean, I'm that foreigner who has bound himself in service to the Lord, right? That's all of us. This is what it means. You were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. And this is why it was said, Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ himself will shine on you. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another in the name of the Lord.